Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. My name is Rabbi Miriam Terlanchan, and I'm your host. For this week's episode, we'll hear the abundant community conversation from September 15th, where I spoke with David White and Peter Block. Abundant community conversations occur every couple of months on Zoom, and they always contain poetry, small groups, and an exploration of a particular theme. In this particular conversation, David and Peter talk about the phenomenology of conversation. As we begin, David White first gives context for his poem, Working Together, before reciting it. The poem I wanted to begin with is the one called Working Together. And it's one of the few poems I wrote on command in a way. I was asked to, after I'd worked with all of the Boeing executives for a full year, it happened to be the launch of the 777 airplane at exactly the same time as we finished working together. So I had a phone call. Would I write a poem for the 777 airplane? (laughs) And I said, ports don't do very well under these circumstances. I'll have a go. But if I can't come up with anything decent, then you'll have to have a blank page. It was for an aerospace trophy dinner. They were having to celebrate this trophy, the Collier Trophy. I said, you'll have to have a blank space because I'm not going to write a piece of spin or propaganda for the plane. So I immediately put myself into that conversation. The title of this exchange today is around the phenomenology of conversation, which is really just a fancy way of saying what happens along the way when you try to have one. Yeah, It's just the philosophical way of saying this is the path you take along a certain argument or conversation or exchange. And I said to myself, well, what's happening in that phenomena when you're on an aeroplane? And one of the interesting phenomena is the way that quite often, even though there are spectacular biblical scenes outside of the plane window, people will have the shutters down and be watching Dumb and Dumber on the back of the plane seat, you know. And one of the dynamics of the conversation out there is denial. I am not in a narrow aluminium tube traveling at 550 miles per hour. I'm somewhere else. Why? Because the forces that hold us in place are invisible, actually. You look out of the window, you can't see anything that's holding you up. So unconsciously, we don't want to pay attention to that fact. But actually, when those forces become visible, when you drop down through layers of temperature and humidity, and you suddenly see that strong white line passing over the shape of the wing, and you realize when you see that white line that the, the forces that are holding you in place are as solid as concrete, actually. But they're made up of this conversation, this meeting between velocity and the shape of the wing. So really what we want to work with this afternoon is the way we shape ourselves to the world around us and how you can travel great distances, you know, just by having two things come together that have never met before. They ne- that shape and the air had never met, except in the Australian Aboriginal culture, where they'd figured it out for the boomerang 30,000 years ago. But for the rest of the world, we only put those two things together 100 years ago or 120 years ago. So this is the poem I wrote, and it's called Working Together, which was the slogan they used actually to build the plane 
wonderful Anglo-Saxon slogan that everyone could interpret in their own way, working together. We shape ourselves to fit this world and by the world are shaped again. We shape ourselves to fit this world and by the world are shaped again, the visible and the invisible working together in common cause to produce the miraculous. We shape ourselves to fit this world and by the world are shaped again, the visible and the invisible working together in common cause to produce the miraculous. I'm thinking of the way the invisible air traveled at speed round a shaped wing easily holds our weight. I'm thinking of the way the invisible air traveled at speed round a shaped wing easily holds our weight. So may we in this life trust to those elements we have yet to see or imagine and find the true shape of our own self by forming it well to the great intangibles about us. So may we in this life trust to those elements we have yet to see or imagine and find the true shape of our own self by forming it well to the great intangibles about us. Working together. Thank you so much, David, and thank you, Peter, for being here and joining us in this conversation. So as are we open with this working together and the shaping of the visible and the invisible, I invite you to the two of you just to tell us how you know each other and what does it mean to be meeting each other again in this space? I love how you make the invisible so tangible and that we are shaped by the world. We're not shaping the world. Everybody wants to say, oh, it's inside out, it's outside in. And we can't be explained except by somebody that imagined a wing and then the world lifts it into things we can't see. And yes. uh, I heard that in you and a concreteness. When I first heard you, I, poetry was difficult for me. I remember being in college and there was a Robert Frost saying, you and I there are holding hands and climbing this hill. There's some poem like that, you probably know what it is. I went to the teacher, I said, I have no idea why this matters. And he said, well, Peter, I was so literal. I studied finance and engineering. And then I heard you in Washington and you spoke and I was called by your speaking. And I said, you wanna have lunch? And you said, okay. So I met you at a intersection of spirituality and psychology. That was the wind and the wing meeting. And I was probably the wing and you were the wind and I could not move towards you. It was a really seminal moment in my life because I never went into poetry imagining that I would work in the organizational world or the corporate world. You know, I grew up from long lines of rebels on both sides, Scots and Irish. And then I grew up in a raving socialist part of West Yorkshire. So there was just a kind of blood reluctance to trust any large organizations whatsoever. And add to that, you know, the serious young man's approach to poetry of uh, not being sullied by the beast. Yeah. And so I get, I gave that. I gave that keynote and then here and afterwards and 
there was a line of people. You waited right till the end of the line, I remember. And in best American fashion, you said, we have to hire you. I don't even remember this. <laughs> I in know. Best... I was the beast. <laughs> <laughs> and in best skeptical Anglo-Irish fashion, I said, for what? <laughs> and, you, and you said to come into corporate America. And I said, for what? And you said a wonderful thing, actually, which made me hesitate in my reluctance, which was you said the language we have in that world is not large enough for the world that we're entering. And I just heard the language in your talk that's large enough. Of course, that was poetry that you heard, yeah. And so I'd like you to come in. And of course I said, no. And then you were very good, you were persistent. I went home and you called me at home on Whidbey Island and, uh, and I said, no again. And then you said, I'm coming out to Whidbey Island. And I said, okay. And then I spoke to my mother and she said, you've already said yes. I said, how do you mean I've already said yes? I said, you know, in the Irish tradition, if you're asked sincerely three times, you have to go. I said, you're right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I remember you arrived in the snow and a blizzard and we had a great conversation. And that began the whole adventure with you and a lovely fellow who hasn't been mentioned, soul friend of us both, Joe Henning. And then we were like the three musketeers for a good good few years there working away together. And I learned so much from both you guys and from the people who came into those. Yeah. I'd just say one last thing was I found that I did not have to compromise my work at all, which was so inviting and, and disturbing at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, that actually people in those sessions and you and Joel were both, were all pushing me to go further, you know, and to be braver in, in what I was saying. So, so it's been a, a long and wonderful journey since, since yeah. then. Yeah. You were very open. You know, I, I think both of us have relished invitations from strange places. And yes. if, if I believed in God, I would think, well, that's how God gets at stubborn souls like me. He sends me an invitation from a strange yes. place. And I say, where did that come yes. from? And it was it was strange for me to invite a poet into my world. And I somehow we've been successful in this strange place, in this beast. All right. And I was wondering what your thought was, was why do why did people come, invite, put up with us? Because we're all very counterdependent people. Thing with authority, I've always found a nice smile to say no. Well, I think we had an art form, really. I mean, I definitely yeah. had an art form in poetry, but both you and Joel yeah. had an art form in your way of speaking. You yes. had this marvelous, patient way of explaining logically why it was needed, mixed with the Jewish stand-up comedian, which was a very powerful combination. And then Joel was just incredibly passionate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you remember, we actually practice that art form in a very conservative way because we used to go Peter, Joel, David, then Peter, Joel, David for three days. We never varied it. So we were conservative in our own way about the art form, but it was a very powerful constellation of forces, actually. Yeah. And here were you and Joel, who'd had so much experience within the corporate world and organizational world with all the stories and the experience and the wisdom from both your sides. And then I was coming in with a completely 
a kind of ancient perspective mm -hmm. that could be brought to bear on any human relationship dynamic. And then the poetry, I've always felt it's been like a leavening. If, you, if you're trying to raise a loaf when you're baking, then you have your yeast, you know, and poetry is the yeast that will raise any loaf you, you want to raise because it gives you the language to talk about things that you're initially disturbed and overwhelmed by. And you say, oh my God, you know, there is a way of actually holding this conversation. Uh, there is a way of sustaining what I previously thought was unspoken or invisible in the world. I think that was incredibly, it always has been incredibly alchemical for people in the way it's allowed things to happen. It was about language. And I think what we've all learned to do is to use language that's radical, not angry, but people don't know how to defend against. And yeah. when I listened when I was near you in the language, and I think you are the language before you can talk about the language that I felt with you. How do I defend against you? The tone, the way you speak, the repetition in which you speak, which that repetition is a kind of a patience with yeah. our listening. Yeah. Let, me, let me say it again. Let me say it again. And it yeah. tells me that as a, as a naive listener, I'm accepted by you. When you think about it, poetry is not really an abstract art form. It's the way human beings speak when they're on their edge of their intellect, their emotions, and even the boundaries of their own body. If you think about it, if you have terrible news to give to a person about the loss of another person, or you're trying to condole someone who's just gone through terrible grief or loss, you will always say whatever you have to say three times, yeah, in mm -hmm. three slightly different ways. Yeah. And you will always couch it in a way in which they have to hear it. You know? mm -hmm. you'll, you'll metaphorically or physically put your hand on their shoulder you know, in order to say that you're there, you're with them, you're present, and you are a witness. And that's the same power in poetry. It's just the way we actually, we all know how to speak poetry, actually, because we've all done it. But we just, we just forget. Yeah. So the poet's just the one who's practiced that particular corner of human articulation. Yeah. I, I always say the difference between a writer and a non-writer is the writer is just someone who keeps writing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A non-writer is someone who did write and then, and then stopped. Yes, I know exactly. Yes. I, I, it's true. Yes. People ask me, "What are you doing, Peter?" And I say, "I'm busy not writing." Okay, <laughs> but I do think the poetry is prophetic. Also, that imagination that allow the wind and the wing to lift something. Yes. Is, uh, yeah, and I think maybe that. The corporate world who found us, you know, you and I have never been great at marketing. We make ourselves available, but I've never had a sales force, are looking for who we are. They're waiting. I always felt we're looking for people looking for us. And I think the instinct about bringing your poetry into this strange commodifying world is a piece of you being prophetic and having an imagination about who we might be, regardless of where we are. 
perfect yeah. point to bring in Miriam. If you look at all religious literature, it's written in poetic form, actually. It's written in powerful language, whether it's the Buddhist sutras, the Pali texts, or the Old Testament. They're all written in that language that I say against which we have no defenses. I fully agree with that. I also was thinking of the repetitive quality in our tradition, at least in the Jewish tradition, you can't convert anyone until they've approached you three times, three authentic times. And so there's also rejection that's coming with every invitation, that it's not as a testament of actually what you believe, but that it takes that long for it to permeate and to accept how much you won't know. So that feels right to me. I was thinking with Peter that part of Peter's poetry and repetitious nature comes in his questions that they're hard to hold on to your questions. They're both sort of larger than the moment that we speak in and also very specific. I think that one of the questions that we're often asked by Peter is the crossroads that we're at. And perhaps, David, yours is the beautiful question that our lives are calling from us. And I would say from the Jewish tradition, we're also believing that our life is trying to answer a question, which we don't find out the question, what the question is until we have to die. They're always answering something. So I'm curious with the beautiful question, and with the crossroads question, what the difference is for the two of you? I always figure the great question is one that's ambiguous, anxiety-provoking, and personal. And that's what you can't defend against. I never in my life asked a question that had anything to do with problem solving. The most unkind, inhuman question in the world is, well, what are you going to do about that? That's what I want to say. What's your thought about the, the questions and where they fit into the world, David? Well, I think the beautiful question is the one that you haven't been asking. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, yeah, at least your personality is not being asking. You're somewhere deep beneath the horizon of your of what you've subscribed as your identity. The question is being asked, and you've just not articulated it on the surface. In the Irish tradition, my mother's tradition, uh, blessing is an enormous force in society. And even today in Ireland, you know, blessing is a big thing, people wishing you well. or And the best blessing you get every day in Ireland is a welcome. Is people are very, very careful about welcoming you into any situation, into a house. You're very welcome. You're here 20 times a day. You're very welcome here. My mother was a very powerful listener. And if there was any trouble in the neighborhood, that person would be at my mother's kitchen table, whether it was 12 at, in, at noon or 12 at night, you know. And when I got to my teens and I started to realize that my mother was no ordinary person, as I grew up, I thought all mothers did this, you know. (laughs) I said, no, my mother's actually quite extraordinary. And I said to her, I said, you're amazing with this, the way you kind of bless people as they go on with your presence. I said, how do you do it, mom? And she said, well, you know, first of all, when you know the story, that a person has been living through, no matter what their behaviors have been, how difficult they are with others. Yeah. When you hear the full story, you start to have understanding and compassion for them. I said, that's right. Yeah. Or she said, I just act as if I already know the story. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first. (laughs) I like it. And then she said, you know, a real blessing is not just wishing someone else well. What is a real blessing then, mom? And she said, a real blessing is where you wish something for someone that they did not even know they wanted themselves. 
but you said it for them. Yeah. And that could actually be an iconic representation of the art of poetry, actually, as a kind of articulation that they have not been able to grant themselves. But through your voice, they can hear it and see it and feel it yeah. and have the revelation themselves. Absolutely. I think that yeah. happens all the time with those questions. And maybe mm. that's the perfect segue into small groups. I was thinking, David, what's the question that's slowly dawning on you at this stage of the game? Mm. You said the powerful question is one that snuck up on you and you didn't even know it was there. Well, yeah, I just please. had a really powerful experience. I sat Zen for many years, sat on the black cushion facing a wall pretending to be Japanese. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> I did it for so long, I felt as if I had it in my body. But actually, I've started to return to sitting because it is an actually a magnified art form. And I felt like I really wanted a faster way of going deeper. But it started to really, along, you know, with, I suppose, with the attentive powers of poetry itself, things have started to really kind of undo, you could say and fall apart in a good way. So I was just in working in Copenhagen and southern Sweden. And in the streets of Copenhagen, one beautiful evening, there was a low watery sun and there was a bit of rain beginning to weep, but the light was beautiful down the street. I had this sudden articulation. You, know? you could say I blessed myself <laughs> by saying, what if you'd already done your work? What if your work was completed, mm. David? Yeah. <clears throat> And that immediately led to that anxiety that you spoke about, that means it's a real question. And the anxiety is this ancient superstition that if you've done your work, then you're on your way out, you know. You're going to die, in other words, because your work has been done. And then I took another deeper step into it and said, well, what if your work was done, but you were still hanging around? <laughs> <You're> still <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> And it was a really, so I then had this very physical experience, both in Copenhagen, and then we drove across the famous bridge across into Sweden, and I was in the woods of southern Sweden with this marvelous outdoor conference. And I had this sense of being a ghost in my own life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've been privileged to witness and be part of life without needing to actually make a difference. And uh, wow. it was a very, very powerful experience. So that's with me. And I try and get Thank back you. into that with the exigencies of what I had to do after I left Sweden. It kind of the immediate sense of, of absolute revelation passed away. Now I have to practice it. Yeah. But that's normal. It's normal in artistic yeah. traditions. It's normal in the tradition. You have the breakthrough. Then you have to actually make it a foundational part of your life. And that's, that's where I am now is practicing that return. There's a there's a koan, which the Japanese Zen tradition has it, well, and the Chinese Zen tradition has this tradition of beautiful and disturbing questions called koans. So one wonderful koan is where Yunmen, great Chinese Chan master, was asked by one of his students, this is all very well, but what about that withered old tree in the courtyard with the leaves falling off it? In other words, this is all very well, but what about the fact that we're all going to die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the answer or the statement Yunman makes is nothing but the full vulnerable body exposed to the golden wind. He says. <laughs> and in the Chinese tradition, the golden wind is fall. It's the fall wind. It's the autumn wind. 
that takes the leaves off your branches and uh wow. and exposes your outline yeah so i love that uh, thank yeah he's talking about this necessary yeah. well it happens you know not only in our later years but it, it happens at every really crucial yeah. stage in our life where you have to die away from your previous identity you know the person you were in your 20s is now not the person you are in your 30s so why don't yeah. we break into groups and let that be the question for each participant telling two other people what is dying away in you yeah a fully vulnerable body exposed to the golden wind at this point participants were placed in breakout rooms and were asked to answer the question posed by david and peter i'd like to invite you to take a breath and consider the question for yourself what is currently dying within you? Deep breath in and out. More poetically framed, how are you maintaining your full vulnerability in the face of the golden wind of change and mortality? Deep breath in and out. As you return, David once again gives context for his poem, Prayer, before reciting it. the breakout room I joined, we ended up on the theme of silence. And I just want to read a poem that's in my latest book of poetry called Still Possible. And it's the experience actually that began a whole cycle of writing. I don't know if you remember when we all went into COVID to begin with, everyone was going to write the next great Irish novel or a Canadian novel or become a consummate French baker. Actually, my wife did become a consummate French baker. But I said to myself, David, don't do it. Don't <laughs> make any promises about any artistic productions. Just enjoy not having to go anywhere and not having to do anything. And I did that. But then one day I was watching a BBC documentary, actually, on this very screen that I'm looking at now to see all of you. And this was a very large screen. And it's called The Secret Life of Monks. And the documentary opened with an interview with one of these older Carthusian monks in the north of England. And you, you suddenly realize, because his voice is so weak and you're straining to hear what he's saying, that he's ill, actually. And he's in bed as he's speaking to you. And every now and again, the camera cuts away to the leaves falling off the trees and the wind in the beautiful monastery grounds, and it comes back to him. And then you realize, actually, that he's dying. And he's been a monk for a good 50 years or so. Yeah. And suddenly, in the middle of his speaking, he says, you know, I gave up praying years ago. And it's a very powerful statement. And the first thought was one of almost disappointment. In other words, he's telling you that he lost his faith years ago. But then there's a moment's beat of silence. And he says, I gave up praying years ago because my whole life became a prayer. I was living and breathing from the atmosphere of prayer as I walked around. So in other words, everything that he promised himself as a young monk, that he only half believed probably had come true for him. Yeah. And then the next scene is the man 
in his coffin, having died, yeah, in the chapel. Very intimate. I recommend this documentary to everyone, The Secret Life of Monks and the BBC. So the other monks must have invited this camera crew in in a very intimate way to chronicle their life. And the whole feeling was, yeah, you can see him as much in death as you can in life. You know, There's no barrier. So I found myself writing this piece for that monk and for myself and for my readers, and it's called Your Prayer. Your prayer only began with words. Each one you realize just a hand on the door to silence. Your prayer only began with words. Each one you realize just a hand on the door to silence. Each one just you putting your full weight against everything you thought you could never deserve. Even in your gathered, chanted strength, what you said in the end was only a shoulder against the grain of wood trying to keep the entrance open until that door, which had been no door at all, gave in. Until that door, which had been no door at all, gave in to necessary grief, which is really just the full understanding of what you were missing all along, which is really gave in to necessary grief, which is really just the full understanding of what you were missing all along, which is really just that full vulnerability you needed to make a proper invitation, which is really just you admitting the full depth of your love at last. The heartbroken heart coming to heartfelt rest. The heartbroken heart coming to heartfelt rest. The opening ins inside you, the opening inside you, now filled to the gleaming brim and casting its generous beam. The part of you you thought was foolish the wisest voice of all. The part of you you thought was foolish. The wisest voice of all. This next thing we're going to do is we want to invite one person from the greater group to just present from your small group. So Devin, go ahead. Let us share a reflection. In my group, it was incredibly open-hearted a number of us spoke about the things that were dying were kind of old career frustrations. And another thing that was dying was patience. <laughs> uh -huh. And if it's a midlife crisis, why is it lasting years? Why does healing from trauma take so long? So the, what you just read plays into that. It was something along the lines of how long do you ask the beautiful question, exposed to the wind, and feel like the answer coming back is just wind, is just emptiness or silence. I would love to, to hear if there's been an experience like that, of just like, I've been asking the beautiful question for quite a while, and I, I don't hear an answer. Well, you know, the answer is in the way you're shaping your identity through the question itself. The beautiful question is beautiful because it's actually shaping your identity just by asking it. So perhaps if you feel as if you're immobile in the question, perhaps you just need to deepen the question, say it in a slightly different way, or try and feel it more physically in, to move you along. Yeah. But I think, you know, there's a good place for impatience. I often think that one of the ways we change is by 
arranging to get really tired of ourselves. <laughs> arranging to get really, really fed up of what you've been saying, how you've been saying it, and how long you've been saying it for. Yeah? That impatience is always a sign that you're about to shed yourself. Yeah, But sometimes that impatience has to go into silence. It's no use berating yourself in the same way the whole time. No, no, you've got to get into the physical sense of that golden wind taking the leaves off your vulnerable body. We tend to equate vulnerability with weakness, but it's really interesting to think of vulnerability more as you making an incredible invitation. You being exposed and open in a way that you weren't before. And when you think about it, there's no, there's never any real conversation without vulnerability. And when vulnerability ends, the conversation ends. We all know that in the kitchen, when we're with our loved ones, our partner, our uh, husband or wife, when vulnerability ends, the conversation ends. When I, when I stop being open. I wonder if we're, when we're asking these questions that we're presuming surety, you know, we think that we can ask the question and that. We're waiting for a resounding truth that also has no doubt. And I think that that's, yeah. that's almost a problematic way of imagining that the wind was going to wrestle us a little bit, but the answer might not come with complete, or actually would be dangerous if it came with complete confidence and truth. And that it, that it has to have doubt that weaves through it, that you sort of embrace yeah. it and understand yeah. it might blow you over. And as Peter knows very well, you have to have a sense of humor about yourself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a sense, of, a sense of humor always tells you that whatever context you've arranged for yourself, there's another context that makes your context absurd. Yeah. And that, that. That's, that's the edge we're always on. Every conversation in the West of Ireland is dependent on that absurdity being made real. So almost every conversation in the West of Ireland proceeds to subverting the original foundation on which the conversation started. <laughs> I love that. And when you've done that, <laughs> you all have a laugh and and you're all alive and you're all together. Then you've come home. I, I love the notion for every great truth, the opposite is also true. Also, I think the welcome you've received in the corporate world is that they are tired and bored with their old conversation. And what yeah. you, you yeah. offer an yeah. opening, a wind, a warmth, a humanity. Yeah. language to bring life back into that world, even though it's still going to do tomorrow what it did today, and at least the way people show up. I think the pandemic allowed people to have a little awakening, right? So many don't want to go back to the office, but where they're looking for what's the new workplace, what they yeah. need is a poet. They need a way of reframing what's happened to them when normal has disappeared. And yeah. nobody with any sense wants a new normal. And I think that's the power of poetry. You work on us without working on us. Even if I can't remember what you said, I can't get rid of it. <laughs> What's this been like for you to be in this conversation, David? Oh, it's been lovely. Well, you know, the central part of it is the reunion with, uh, with you and seeing your shining face again. <laughs> and just remembering all the adventures we had together and with Joel too. And we have friendships that are visible 
and there are ones that are invisible and stay with us. And I felt your invisible friendship, even though we've hardly spoken over the last 20 years or so. And I feel it as a powerful kind of kind of witness. And I'm deeply grateful for that, that invitation that you made to me, which led to more and more invitations and your willingness to overcome my skepticism. Well, your skepticism was matched by my doubt because after, <laughs> after we finally worked together in a workshop, I, I allotted David about a minute and a half every day. And I thought I was taking a huge risk to bring a poet into the corporate world. But I feel just like you do, David. You're at the, you're at the top of my resume. Okay. One more poem, maybe. This is a short piece by William Wordsworth, probably written sometime between the late 1790s and 1810. And it's from a much larger work called The Prelude, 300 pages of blank verse, which is my desert island book of poetry that I would take (laughs) if I was marooned. But this is just four or five lines. And to me, it's an iconic representation of absolute freedom. The earth lay all before me. You've got to imagine him standing on a mountaintop in the English Lake District in Cumbria, the north of England. The earth lay all before me with a heart joyous, nor afraid of its own liberty. With a heart joyous, nor afraid at its own liberty, I look about me. And should the chosen guide be nothing better than a wandering cloud, I cannot miss my way. With a heart joyous, nor afraid at its own liberty, with a heart joyous, nor afraid at its own liberty, I look about me. And should the chosen guide be nothing better than a wandering cloud, I cannot miss my way. Thanks for listening. You can find more about David and Peter in the show notes. Also, our next Abundant Community Conversation will be with Jen Hoos Rothberg on November 15th, so mark your calendars. This episode has been hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlenchamp, and it's been produced by the fabulous Joey Taylor, and music is from Jeff Gorman.